Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. It's a joy for us to be able to come back to Matthew's Gospel today. It's been about a month since we've been able to look into this Scripture. This is a very important part of God's Word. Matthew begins with the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. 400 years had passed since the end of the Old Testament, and with 400 years, God had not sent a prophet to Israel. There were no prophets. God had not raised up any preachers. Uh, He had sent prophets before to Israel in order to teach them his ways and to tell them how they were to be obedient to the Lord, to obey the commandments of the Lord, to worship and to obey the one true God. And by the time that those 400 years were over, Israel was in a mess. I mean, it's hardly even possible to describe the mess that Israel was in politically and socially and most important, religiously. Israel was just in a terrible place. But there was always the promise that God had given through the prophets that a Messiah would come. The the Bible said, the prophets said that God would send a Messiah and he would restore again the kingdom to Israel. And so the New Testament begins with, in the Gospel of Matthew, with the birth of Jesus Christ, the King, and he was far more than what Israel expected. But at the same time, he was much less than what they wanted. Because when Jesus came, the thing that Israel was interested in was the political aspects of the kingdom. They were interested that they would get their territory back. Uh, They wanted their autonomy back. They wanted to get Rome out of the picture. And what Jesus came to do, first of all, when he came into the world, was to restore true worship and to bring them salvation. And so thus his ministry began. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, and he showed the people that the government of his kingdom has a higher standard of morality that they were ever able to reach, higher impossible than they were able to do. And the only way that they could be right with the king and with the king of this kingdom and have the right to live in his kingdom was to come to him by faith, believing that he was also able to forgive them from their sins. And so that was the ministry of Christ. He came and he gave the people a glimpse of what his kingdom would be like. And so he healed people of diseases, and that was a picture of how there would be health in his kingdom. He stilled the storms on the sea. That showed him that he was God and that he controls nature and that in his kingdom he was able to make their crops grow abundantly. There would be no need for worry about food in his kingdom. He cast out demons, and that was to show them that in his kingdom righteousness reigns. And the powers of Satan, uh, the powers of evil, have no control over his people. And most importantly, as I've just mentioned, he came to show them that he could forgive them of their sins. That forgiveness is possible. And he did that by going to the cross to die for them and to satisfy God's perfect justice in paying the penalty of sin. And all of that work that Jesus did was accomplished in the period of three years. His public ministry was three years, and yet the effect of that ministry is ongoing. We still have the ministry of Jesus Christ with us today. 2,000 years later, it still survives. And so we have to ask the question, how does it survive? Why, after all of this time, only three years of Jesus' ministry, why, after 2,000 years, has this ministry 
of Christ survived? Well, it begins with the call of 12 men. 12 men that Jesus trained to be preachers of the gospel. And they were very important men in the world's history. And we know them as the 12 apostles. Now, I want to begin reading today in verse number 1. And I know you're quite familiar with these scriptures by now. Our text verses today will be verses 5 through 7. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 1. And if you would stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll begin with verse number 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heavenly Father, we come now and... We bow before you, Lord, and we ask you to uh, be with us as we speak your words today. Help us to understand this passage before us. And, Lord, may you give us a message that will encourage us in your work and bring lost sinners to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Almost three months ago, we began the 10th chapter of Matthew with a message that was entitled, Help for the Harvest. In the end of chapter 9, Jesus told his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labors into his harvest. When Jesus told his disciples to pray for labors, he knew that he was going to answer their prayer by calling these very same men to be the ones to do the work of evangelism. He knew that when they began to earnestly pray and when they realized that there was a work to be done, there was great work to do, when they began to understand that the world is dying without Christ, that the world is going to be reaped in judgment, that's when they began to understand that they were the laborers that God, that Christ was calling into the field. Now in chapter 10 begins, it begins with the calling of 12 men to do ministry. How is the ministry of Christ going to survive? Now, we have it today with us because these 12 men that were called were so faithful to their calling. And we have it today because they preached the gospel of Christ and they trained others to do the same things that they did. Now, that's been the method for the previous 2,000 years. Preachers of the gospel have kept the gospel ministry alive by understanding that the world still needs to be reached for Christ and that it's our responsibility to give them this gospel message. And when I speak of us and when I I say we, I don't mean just preachers. I mean every person in this room has been given, if you are a child of God, you have been given the same responsibility to give this gospel. We are to strive together for the gospel in this world. Now, the method has worked all of these years, and so we come to our time, and we come to our city, 
and we come to this church and we have to ask the question, will this ministry survive? And will we preach the gospel or are we going to let a generation die, our generation die, without hearing the word of God? Are we going to do what the apostles did? And again, that's not a question for me alone. That's a question that God asks every person in the room. That's a believer. It's your job as well as mine to give the gospel. Now today we're going to continue with this message, Men on a Mission. And we've been concentrating for several weeks now on just one major point. I mean, this is basically all that you've seen on your outline is point number one, and that's the first messengers. And the first messengers were these 12 men whose names are given here in the first part of this chapter. They're 12 apostles. They're the first ones to be given this commission of preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so what we have here is a chapter about their training. How was Jesus going to tell them? How would they go about doing what he called them to do? And we've noticed about them that they weren't perfect men. But most notably, we've said they were faulty men. And we've gone through the lives of every one of these men. And where the Bible gives us information about them, about the faults and the mistakes that they made, we've looked at those, we've noted those. And we also know that people tend to look at these apostles as being larger than life. That really they're very much different from us. That they're not people just like us. And so we put them up in stained glass windows in churches. There are statues that are made of them. They've been made the patron saints of almost everything imaginable. But the truth of these men is that they were ordinary, that they only became extraordinary because Jesus called them and because they were willing to submit to that call. They were willing to place themselves under the teachings of Christ And so they were given God's power because they were committed men and they were men with willing hearts. And that's the kind of people that God uses. He uses imperfect people, but he uses ones that are willing to be filled with his spirit and people that are willing to walk in his way and to obey his commandments and especially this commandment that he's given to tell the world about salvation in Christ. And so that means that every one of us can be used just as God used them. And the secret to it is surrendering our hearts to God. And when we do that, God will supply all of the power that's necessary for his work. So this is what he did with these men. They were faulty men. But we don't want to stop with their faults because we see also that they were faithful men. And we've gone down the list, man by man, and we found faithfulness in each one of them. And the exception, of course, would be Judas Iscariot. He was a failure, but his failure was not Christ's failure because Judas had every opportunity that all the other disciples had. Judas saw the same things that they saw. His failure is not Christ's failure because he had every advantage that the apostles had. He heard Jesus preach He saw his graciousness, and even right down to the very end, Jesus reached out to Judas with compassion, even knowing what Judas was about to do. But the problem with Judas is that he had an unwilling heart. He had a hardened heart. And so by his own choice, he betrayed Christ. He he never believed in the one who could change that hardened heart. But all of these other men were believers. They made mistakes, 
But after the resurrection of Christ, it's when they, that's when they became fully apprised of the power of Christ. That's when the Holy Spirit came upon them. At Pentecost, these men had the Spirit come on them, and Christ's word was fulfilled in them. So that at his ascension, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit has come, and he said, you will receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And that is what happened. They became mighty witnesses for Christ, and through them the gospel reached every part of the world. They were faithful, and every one of them stayed faithful unto the end. And they saw death early. Just less than ten years after Pentecost, James was martyred for his faith, for preaching the gospel. Herod beheaded him. And lesser men, unfaithful men, would have seen that. They, they would have seen James taken and killed for his faith, and they would have stopped preaching. They, they would have never continued with that. But these men were undaunted by the fact that James was killed. They preached with even more boldness, and not one of them stopped until the last breath expired from their bodies. That's because they were truly faithful men. God has given these men as our example. God wants faithful men. God wants faithful women. He wants courage to be our mantle. And so he wants us to stand up for the gospel of Christ, no matter what the opposition, no matter where we are. And I know that there are some of you that say, I can't be faithful. I can't be like that. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the aptitude. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have the ability of these men. And that's really been the whole point of these messages as we went through the lives of every single one of them. Here's the thing that we noticed about every one of them. None of them had what it takes. Not one of them had what it takes to do what Jesus called them to do. Not one of them would have stood to death unless God gave them what it takes. And the Scriptures tell us that God is able to do that for us. He's able to do that for every one of us here. We just have to be willing to surrender our lives to Him. And when we are, when we seek that courage, when we seek God's power, God gives us what it takes. Now, if you'll just glance down the page of your Bible to the 18th verse, Jesus already anticipated the difficulty they would have, the, the, the problem of courage and knowing what to say. And so in the 18th verse, he tells them, And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And so that is your promise too. It's my promise. Just be faithful. Just be ready. And when the time comes, God will give you the courage to say the right words. So they were faulty men and they were faithful men. But there's another part here that's really, really important for us. And that is they were foundational men. These are men who were the building blocks of the church. The foundation of faith was laid in them. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, there is a message that Paul gave to the Gentile church at Ephesus, 
And where was it that they received their faith? Where was it that they received the knowledge of God? Where was it that they built their faith? Well, they built it on the foundation of Jesus and the apostles. The apostles, Jesus Christ being the, uh, the chief cornerstone of the foundation. It was built upon him and the apostles and all true churches today have that foundation. Jesus is the tried and the true stone and the apostles are in that foundation laid right up next to him. And so undergirding the spiritual building of the church is the faith that we have in Jesus and the words that were spoken by the apostles. Now, that word is in the Bible. That word is nothing but the Bible. It alone gives us the words of Jesus and the apostles. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly, or some of your Bibles might say, truly furnished, unto all good works. So Christ built his church with these men. The Apostle John wrote at the end of the first century, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us not. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John said, We are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us. And who is John speaking of? We are of God. Who? The apostles. That's what he means. We are of God. We're the ones that knew Christ personally. We are the ones that were called by him. We are the ones that have been trusted with that message. And so at the end, or rather at the beginning of the first chapter in 1 John, he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. They are men, they were men that were acquainted personally with Christ and had been called by him. So they are foundational men. And that tells us that there is no one that supersedes their authority. So that when the canon of Scripture was completed and when these men died, there was no one who had the right to change the words that the apostles said. There's no one who has the right to take away from it. No one has the right to add anything to it. And that means the Pope. He's not able to do that. It means no false prophet can do it like Joseph Smith of the Mormons. It means not Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah Witnesses. And it also means that there is no private revelation that's been given to any person. But what we receive comes straight from the Word of God, and that is His truth. So we stand upon the Word of Christ and the apostles. That is foundational for the church. And it's important that we understand this that these men were human, that these men were just like us, they were faulty, but Jesus called them and Jesus gave them their authority. And in verse number 1, it says he gave them power. And when he did that, they became a different group of men because they had the power of Christ in a very special and unique way. Now, I want to hasten on this morning for six weeks. Your outline has had only that on it, the first messengers. And now, finally you're able to see Roman numeral two. What is it? What is number two? Well, number two is the field for missions. Verse five, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Now, at, the first, at first glance, that, that statement seems a little bit shocking to us because Jesus says to the men, don't go to Gentiles. And he says, don't go to Samaritans. And that seems incongruous with the Great Commission. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we just read in Acts chapter 1, the words of Jesus as he ascended back to the Father. He said, ye shall be witnesses both to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And so Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, does not sound like the Great Commission. And there's good reason for that. It's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is unlimited. The Great Commission tells us that the field for missions is the world. And that's because every person needs to hear the gospel of Christ. It doesn't matter what color they are, their race or their ethnicity, their social status. Every person needs to hear the gospel of Christ. And so what is this? What is Jesus saying to them? Well, this is the beginning of it all. This is a limited focus of ministry. So in the very beginning, they had a limited focus of ministry. These men are in Christ's training facility. They're in the preparation stage. And we have to realize that there are reasons for that. They, they were limited at first. It doesn't mean that the Gentiles were never going to hear the gospel. It simply means that the Jews were to hear it first. And that's because the Jews were the ones that were first in the promise. I'm sorry if you haven't attended Sunday evening services where we're studying about this, but we've just finished a five-part series on the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom comes at the end of this world, and it's always been God's intent that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And so it makes sense to us that, that when the apostles were told to preach, that the first ones they're told to preach to are the Jews. They're to preach to them because they are the original people of the kingdom. The apostle Paul said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to what? To the Jews first and then to the Greeks. And Jesus in his own ministry operated this way. In the 15th chapter of Matthew, he said, I am not come, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so you find in Jesus' ministry that he preaches almost exclusively to Jews. Now, he did reach out to Gentiles at times on occasion, but that was by no means primary for him, at least not in his personal ministry. So that's the first reason. The Jews have to be preached to first. But there's another reason for this that's probably more compelling the, the gospel needs to go to the Jews first, but if it had not gone to them first, then it never would have reached the Jews at all. You see, if the apostles had gone to the Gentiles first, or if they'd gone to the Samaritans first, if they first started preaching in those territories, then the Jews would never have listened to them. They would have seen it as a message that was an aberration, something that's given to the Gentiles. They would have identified it not as a message that comes from Jehovah God, but something that comes from a foreign God, something that comes from a mysterious God, someone they know nothing about. Now, they could not preach to the Gentiles because the Gentiles were at first worshipers of false God. Rome and the others were worshiping mythological gods. The Samaritans had long been in disobedience to God's laws. They were worshiping in a heathen place at Mount Gerizim. And so if the apostles had gone to preach to them first, 
then there never would have been an opportunity to preach to the Jews. Not once would Jesus have been invited to preach in a Jewish synagogue and to give the law there and to teach there if he had gone to the Samaritans and the Gentiles first. And the apostles never would have seen mass conversions that they saw later among the Jews in Jerusalem. So the focus had to be limited temporarily. And the truth is simply this as well. The apostles were not ready for Gentiles. They were ready to preach to other peoples. And we saw that earlier with James and John. Remember, their method of evangelism was to call down fire from heaven and consume everybody that's not a Jew. So they weren't ready for it. They weren't ready for Samaritans. They weren't ready for Gentiles. Simon the Canaanite, do you remember when we talked about him? Here is a man who's fresh out of a political party that puts Gentiles to death. He's killing Gentiles. We called him earlier a terrorist. So they had long held prejudices that hadn't yet been overcome. And what it took was a Pentecost-like experience to change them. Now, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and he baptized these people with fire, but all the ones that were baptized were Jewish members of the church. They're the ones that are baptized at that time. The time for Gentiles was later. Remember, Peter was told to go and preach to the Gentile Cornelius. And when he preached to him, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had on the Jews earlier. But still, even after that, there wasn't a big push to evangelize Gentiles. That took the Apostle Paul, and a special calling for him, and he became the Apostle to the Gentiles. So Matthew chapter 10 is not the Great Commission. They're not ready for that yet. This is a limited commission. This is the first trip. This is time to get their feet wet in evangelism. And so there's training for this, and there's difficulties that go along with it. And if they weren't able to endure the difficulties of preaching to their own people, the Jews, then they certainly would not be able to preach to the Gentiles. Now, there's something that we can learn from this about the field for missions. And I think what it teaches us today is that we have a primary objective for ministry. You see, every church has the responsibility of missions. Every believer has been given a commission to give the gospel. But I don't think that every church has been given the same type of ministry or the same way to do missions. Some churches are not equipped to do what other churches can do. There are some very large churches that can have multiple ministries. I mean, just by virtue of the numbers of people that they have and and the amount of money that they have to deal with, they have more ministries that they can do. So they can spread themselves out to a lot of different areas and they can do great work in other areas. That might be the case with a church that operates a Bible college, one that has bus ministries and homeless shelters and Christian schools. Oftentimes, they're able to do great works also with foreign missions. And we thank God for churches that are faithful that can operate with multiple ministries. But the facts are that by far, the majority of churches are less than 100 people in membership. And so that means that churches are limited with the scope of their ministry. And so it's better that we do less well than do a whole lot of things poorly. And so we have to learn where is the focus of our ministry? What is it that God has called this church to do? What is our primary objective? 
Well, we can always say that the primary objective is to reach people. It's always to give people the gospel. That's why churches are here. That's why God saved us and why he left us in this world. Well, that's something that a lot of Christians haven't yet learned. They don't know why God left them in the world. Now, if God didn't want you to do his work, if he had some other plan, then what he would have done, he would have taken you out of the world as soon as you got saved. You get saved, you're gone. Right straight into heaven. But God left us here to do his work. And so there are many Christians that are doing nothing but filling a pew. And they haven't learned that God didn't call them to be a bump on a log and do nothing for him. He's left us here in the world to do his work. And so the primary objective for all of us is always to reach people for Christ. But the way of doing that's not the same for every church. We're not all involved in exactly the same type of ministry. Now, for sure, this must be true. Our efforts at ministry and what we do has to be biblical. We can't ignore how the Bible says that we are to do it, but we all can't do the same things. So someone might ask the question, what has God called you to do? And when I say you, I mean me. What has he called me as the pastor of this church to do? What what is our focus of ministry? What does he want us to do here? And that question has really piqued my interest, especially when I've read about the different job descriptions for pastors. And I've found that in many churches that you have pastors that specialize in certain things. They may specialize in evangelistic outreach to the exclusion of other types of ministries. And then there are some pastors that are very effective as counselors, and they may deal with marital problems and grief counseling and family issues. In many large churches, they have pastors for vision, and they have pastors for teaching, and they have pastors that cover all of these different bases and all different types of specific areas of ministry, and they do that with many different men. But when you have a small church like ours, it means that the pastor is called upon to do all of that. He doesn't have a multiple staff to do those things. And so the pastor gets stretched thin, and it's difficult for a pastor to do all things really well. And I thought about that, and I have to concede my weaknesses. And so what I have to do is do what every pastor must do, and that's call on God for help. Because this is not a job that we do in our own strength. You can't do it in human strength. And you need to realize this. Whenever you get dissatisfied with the pastor, then you think for just a minute what it would be like if your job description was everything from the CEO to the parking lot attendant. Think how difficult that would be for you to cover it all really well. So I thought about that, as I said. I concede my weaknesses, and I think about what is it that God has called me to do? What has God called Berean Baptist Church to do. And I think that God has called me to be a pastor that focuses on a major need that I think that we have in Baptist churches today. And I think that that major need is to teach the doctrines of the faith that have been taught by Baptist churches for centuries but are now being abandoned. And I think that the great need for our church is not to sacrifice doctrine on the altar of whatever it takes to get people to come to church. I think Brian Baptist Church, I think people ought to realize this is not the purpose-driven church. If you mean by that, that we're going to try to be all things to all people and that we are going to incorporate into what we do here what the world wants with their entertainment and make this church the like their preferred environment catering to all of their felt needs. 
That's not what God has called us to do. I don't think that there's a need to get people into church if the church has no gospel when they get there. There's no need for a church that doesn't teach the fundamental doctrines of the Bible and teach people that God's glory is paramount in everything that we do. This is not a ministry that's here to wipe people's noses and preserve feelings. And most churches are like that. Most churches are not about God at all. They're about us. How do we feel about this and how do we feel about that? God's not really interested in how you feel about anything. God's not even really interested in how you feel about yourself or making yourself, making you feel better about yourself. God is interested in your life only as it glorifies him. That's what we've been called to do. And so I think that God has called me and he's called this church to be a place here in this area where people can come and actually hear the Bible taught again. To actually hear the Word of God opened and to hear what Jesus said. I mean, I don't, I'm not interested in you coming here to hear about my opinions and what I say. When you come here, I want to make sure that you've received a word from God. What is it that God said? And when I open up the Bible, I find Jesus preaching, and I find him and the apostles preaching about repentance and faith. And I find them talking about hell. And I find them concentrating about, on, on the depravity of man. And I find them preaching about the blood of Christ. And I find them preaching about the expectation of God's people to live in holiness. I find them preaching those subjects, and I find them preaching the doctrines of grace. And so when you come to Brian Baptist Church, that's what you'll hear. And if you came here for you and not for God, then you're going to feel terribly out of place. Now the good news for everyone is that the glory of God is found in your personal salvation. That's his commission. That is the mission of God. And we have to recognize that there is a primary objective in what God has called us to do, and we're to do that well. God calls imperfect people, but we know that we have a great big God. Now, thirdly, we have to look at verse number 7. He says, and, and as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, thirdly, then, is faith in the message. Now, I want to give you three statements that are extremely important. And the first two of these go directly to the heart of the gospel. And then the third one goes to the heart of evangelism. And the first statement is, there is accountability for sin. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you'll glance back up at chapter 9, verse 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Now, do you remember when we talked about the harvest? What is the harvest? Well, the harvest is the time of judgment. The Bible says that God is going to send in his reapers to the harvest, and those reapers are the angels. And the angels are going to come, and they're going to remove all offenders out of God's kingdom. Now, the apostles were called to warn people about that, that there is an impending judgment. Judgment is coming, and either you will be in God's kingdom or you'll be out of it. Why is there judgment? Well, there's judgment because the judgment is a time to give account for your sins. When I say that God has called this church to preach the great doctrines of the faith, that really goes to the core of the gospel message. 
we are all going to meet God in judgment. And if your church never mentions judgment, if it never says that you're going to stand before God, then you're in the wrong church. And we're going to meet God in one of two ways, and in only one of these two ways. Our sins are either forgiven by our faith in Christ, either we are justified by faith, or we are condemned for unbelief. And some people might think, well, well, I, I think that I can escape that condemnation. You know, I'm a pretty good person, you know. There aren't any major sins on my resume. Well, you've got a big problem because Jesus said that you are condemned already. He said you're already dead in sin. Well, how do you feel about that? Does it make any difference how you feel about it? It's true. How you feel about it's not going to change it. Judgment is coming And God says, Jesus says, the apostles said, you are going to stand before God. You're not going to change that by the way that you feel. And the Bible says that the penalty for not believing in Jesus Christ is eternal death in the fires of hell. And I know that there are churches that won't tell you that, but I just did. I have to tell you what to trust Christ for. You'll never know what to trust Christ for unless you know what you're being saved from. So that goes to the core of the gospel, the accountability for sin. We're going to stand before God in judgment. And then also at the core of the gospel is that there is responsibility to receive the Savior. God never says, do this if you want. He never says, I'd like to present you with several options. The apostle Paul said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so you can't leave church today and say, well, I don't like what I heard. I don't like what the church says. I, uh, this church is no good for me because that's not what I want. Well, God didn't leave you with that option. You are commanded by Almighty God to repent and to turn with faith to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's it. There's, there's no other options. Now, I've got some very serious news for you. And And I don't want anyone to get mad at me and think that I blindsided you with this information. But if there's anybody that were to leave here today without assuming this responsibility of believing in Christ, then you're in a different position than when you came in. Now before, when you came in, you were condemned. And you should be happy that this church cares enough to tell you about that. But now that you've received that information and you don't believe, still don't believe, then you're in what the old theologians used to call aggravated condemnation. Aggravated simply means that the condemnation will be more severe. And so if you hear about Christ and you refuse to believe in him, then you stood in the face of God and you said, I don't care what you say, I'm not going to accept my responsibility. Which in effect is to tell God, you are not going to rule me in your kingdom. Now interestingly, that's exactly what the Jews said that crucified Christ. We will not have this man to rule over us. I was driving in today, and this is not on your listening, listening sheet, but I was thinking about the sermon this morning. I was driving in, and I thought about this scripture in Hebrews 10, verse 26. And it says there, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. In other words, the Word of God is telling us that if you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, there is no other way. 
that you can have sins forgiven. There is no other way to deal with the problem of how you're going to stand before God. There's no other way to have sin taken care of. If you sin willfully, after that you receive this knowledge, if you willfully reject this after having heard it, there is no other way for you. There's nothing left. And so if you stand and refuse Christ, you've come right in the face of God and said, I don't care what you say, I'm not going to accept my responsibility. Responsibility. Now, now the good news of this is that God will forgive you of all of your past unbelief. The good news is that God will allow you to come into his kingdom with the simple acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and if you believe in him, he'll forgive your sins today. If you admit your sins, if you, admi- if you repent of those sins, if you trust him, if you tell him that you want him to be the Lord of your life, then he'll save you from your sins. Romans 10, verse 8 says, But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. And in the 13th verse it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So those two issues, the accountability for sin and the responsibility to believe the Savior, that is the heart of the message the apostles were told to preach. And that is the same thing that we're told to preach today. Now the third statement that I want to give you goes to the heart of evangelism. And this is what faith is like after repenting and believing. And thirdly, is the availability to be used in his service. This is the call to evangelism. Now, these first men were called as messengers of the gospel. They were commissioned to preach the gospel, and it started with them, and it reached the world through them. But it wouldn't have been reached unless the ones that they taught did the same things that they did. The next generation would have been lost. They all would have died without Christ unless someone was willing to keep up that same preaching of the gospel. Now, if that happened, if they didn't do it, then then the chain that connects us to Christ would have been broken. There had to be people from that age, all the way back to where the apostles were, up until this very time, that were available and willing and ready to preach the gospel. And this is not somebody else's job to do. We can't say, well, well, if we don't do it, somebody else will. Now, you think about that position for just a moment. Think about your own family and your friends. Are you going to let them go to hell in hopes that somebody will do what you won't do? Are you willing to risk that, hoping that somebody will do what you won't do? And I would submit to you that if you feel that way, then you never understood point number three, letter A. There is accountability for sin. Nobody escapes that accountability. And so we have to tell people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judgment is coming. The harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. And so that's what God wants from you. God wants you to be a laborer in this harvest and tell people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for us today, the field is the world. And you may be thinking, well, I can't reach the world. There's no way I can reach the world. Well, then I can tell you that at least this, 
the sphere for evangelism is everyone within your influence. Everyone that you are come in contact with, all of your family, all of your friends, all of your co-workers, they're within your sphere of influence, and they're your field for missions. And that's where God wants us to labor. That's where he wants us to work, giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we confess our unworthiness. We confess our failure to do what your word has commissioned us to do. Lord, as your people, help us to understand in a greater way that the gospel must be preached, that people must hear about this, that people are dying every day. The harvest is plenteous. Judgment is coming. Help us, Lord, to give them the gospel of Christ. We pray for your people today. We pray for their their dedication to to this work, to consecrate themselves to this work, to live holy, godly lives in order to be examples to others so our witness might be effective. Then also we pray, Lord, for anyone who might have come into these services today and heard the message and have been told what, what you expect, faith in you, that there is accountability for sin. Help them to understand that. And there is no escaping the wrath of God There is no other way but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Turn hearts to you. Lord, bless as we sing today. May may we be ready to do the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.